to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. We're two PhD students with different backgrounds researching AI and technology ethics. In this episode, we interview Tong Kui Hu about digital exhaustion in the modern day and his new upcoming book, Digital Lethargy, Dispatches from an Age of Disconnection. Tung Hui is an associate professor of English at the University of Michigan and the author of A Prehistory of the Cloud from MIT Press. He's on the advisory board of the McLuhan Center for Culture and Technology and is also a poet. And now to the interview. We are on the line today with Tung Hui Hu. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Absolutely. And today we're here to talk about the topic of digital lethargy, which is pulled from your upcoming MIT Press book titled Digital Lethargy, Dispatches from an Age of Disconnection. So to begin this conversation, we just wanted to start at the beginning. Could you define for us what you mean when you say the word lethargy? Yeah, lethargy is originally a medical disease, and I think it still exists. Um, I think there's encephalitis lethargicus, um, which is a fatal disease. Um, anyway, lethargy comes from uh, Greek word uh, lethe, or forgetting, right? So it means something like forgetting yourself or self-forgetting, um, falling into um, a coma, being idle or unresponsive. Um, but I think the idea behind lethargy um, keeps coming up over time. Uh, I think the thing that's most relevant perhaps um, is a kind of spiritual or mental lethargy um, that the old Christian monks used to call acedia. Um, and that described a feeling of listlessness, of being unable to focus, of, uh, you know, I, I sort of picture monks going uh, crazy in their cell, uh, running around and, and saying, I, you know, I can't, I'm not getting anywhere here. Um, and it was actually considered, I think, one of the worst deadly sins. Um, uh, it eventually got merged uh, with melancholia into uh, the deadly sin of sloth. Um, so I, I think it's actually pretty relevant today, to, and I, I want to kind of coin that phrase digital lethargy to describe a feeling um, uh, where we also seem to be stuck in some sort of busy idleness of acedia, uh, where we're doom scrolling and glued to our feeds and killing time. Uh, we're sort of caught somewhere between boredom and overstimulation. Um, and uh, I think we're also, uh, going through a feeling of possibly being a little out of sync with the demands of, of being uh, an empowered person um, that we're supposed to be online. So that sort of sense of forgetting yourself comes back. Um, so what I ultimately want to say is that um, lethargy is more than just being tired or exhausted or, or burnout um, or Zoom fatigue. Um, uh, it's uh, really comes because uh, I, I think um, the, the act of uh, being a person today, or actually of um, uh, being a person in the way that digital capitalism asks us to be, which is to be yourself and to express ourselves and to speak up all the time um, is tiring. Um, where we've unthinkingly adopted a model of personhood uh, where um, this is the best way to be in the world and anything else um, feels passive or um, out of place. And so this is why digital lethargy is, is a sort of feeling that nags us and um, isn't quite there, it's sort of hard to put into words, um, uh, but sort of describes the burden of being yourself. Uh, and so uh, hopefully that gives you some sense of how I'm moving from lethargy, this very old idea into digital lethargy, uh, the title of my book. 
one of the things that you said, you're, you're connecting this to capitalism. You're connecting this to these bigger um, structures of economics, of labor, of all these things that even in of themselves are sometimes hard for us to trace and track down and figure out exactly how they're impacting our lives because it's the water that we swim in um, to a certain degree. But you begin part of this book by talking about the industrial revolution and some of the other stages um, of, of capitalism as it's evolved and how it intersects with digital lethargy. And I'm wondering if you can like further contextualize, you already got to this a little bit, but further contextualize um, for the, maybe the last few centuries, how you see digital lethargy has evolved. Yeah, thanks for the question. I will say that I was accidentally categorized as a cultural historian once um, under like, underneath a group photo. And I've always been conscious of, of the fact that I'm like a fake historian and not a real historian. Um, so everything, take everything I say with a grain of salt. But, um, you know, it goes back to, um, you know, lethargy kind of describes this problem with um, selfhood, right? Like you're not working hard enough, you're lazy, um, or there's some deficiency in um, how you're understood. And I mean, not always as a bad thing, um, sometimes as a problem to be solved, right? So in industrial capitalism, um, this is, uh, as the historian Anson Rabenbach puts it, um, this is kind of the moment where they discovered fatigue. And fatigue was something that was seen a little bit differently than a, you know, if previously lethargy or sloth was seen as a moral sin, um, you know, scientists started saying, and, and doctors started saying, um, you know, we actually can't push human bodies to a certain limit. We had to do something else instead. You know, they keep dying on us or something uh, in these factories. So what are we going to do? Um, and this is where Taylorism comes from. Um, so the uh, the guy comes in with his stopwatches and he starts following everybody around in the factory to sort of see everybody's motions. He starts timing, you know, how long it takes for you to you know move your hand like this, how you move from one station to another. Um, in the moment of optimizing it, right, and optimizing it both uh, so that workers um, uh, can be given some time to recharge um, and, uh, and, you know, do things more efficiently, of course, and, you know, produce more. But this is a moment where um, people start understanding uh, lethargy as a kind of scientific matter um, that, uh, you know, should be studied. Um, it's also a moment uh, where, um, the human body is understood as a kind of giant motor, right? Uh, just like the machines that they're driving uh, in these factories. Um, and I think that what's interesting is to think about, um, you know, all these diseases of work and selfhood. Um, you know, what is the what is today's equivalent of that, right? So if you look at something like burnout, which comes uh, in the early 1970s, it comes out of the free clinics in San Francisco. Um, which were clinics established for the poor, um, essentially to treat drug addiction, to treat anybody regardless of, you know, if they have money or not. Uh, and burnout gets diagnosed as something that is a problem of caring too much, of caring too much for these people, um, of, you know, these doctors and these um, medical workers, um, uh, people uh, dealing with mental health issues. Um, so it becomes a problem that signals a different kind of work, right? So industrial capitalism is all about like factories and the model here is something about, you know, work as caring, as emotional labor, um, as communication. Um, and I think that sets the stage for what I'm calling digital lethargy, where um, the new form of work isn't even about like going into your office or checking in and, you know, logging online or something. It's it's the work of being yourself. It's the work of constantly being asked to uh, improve yourself, um, to express yourself, to find your own interests. Um, and that's why, as you said, uh, you're, you're saying that it's kind of like the water we swim in. Um, it's almost unnoticeable. Like it feels really good most of the time. Or it feels good to discover ourselves or to you know do whatever we want, um, to make choices, to be empowered. Um, 
But if that's the only model we have for selfhood, then that becomes actually a basis for um, something like burnout or lethargy, just something that we can't point to and notice because it doesn't feel like we're, you know, clocking into, you know, our workplace um, when we're, you know, being online. So uh, that's that's why I think that's some, I don't know if I covered several centuries worth of, of material, but I think that's my like last 150 years at least. That's great. So let's maybe um, take the, the history and bring it into the present day, because something that you said um, previously really, uh, it, it really stuck with me. And that was that we, we in the modern day in our digital devices are caught between boredom and overstimulation. And I maybe this struck me because I've I've felt that many times whenever I open my phone, I feel like I'm simultaneously like inundated with notifications and also like endlessly wanting to scroll. So I'm curious personally for you, how have you felt digital lethargy in the modern day and what what maybe motivated and inspired some of this work and these ideas? I don't know if I'm really allowed to answer that, honestly, because I've just had a kid um, right before the pandemics. And I think something about the combination of those two um, has given me way more time on my hands than I know what to do with. Uh, so I spend a lot of time killing time, um, uh, but also, you know, feeling isolated and anxious and, and trapped. Um, and I don't think that was intentional when I started writing the book. Um, you know, the the you know, the book took a lot longer to write than I thought it did. And everybody's like, ha ha, you're writing so lethargically. And I'm like, that's, that's not funny. Um, but, you know, I think my initial impulse was, uh, and I don't even know if I had the word uh, in mind yet. Uh, my initial impulse was to find um, some mechanism of resistance against, you know, um, capitalism or, uh, you know, the digital platforms that rule our lives. Um, and so I kept looking for artworks that would sort of show me the like clever hacker the way out. And kind of midway through the book, I realized that I had it all wrong, that um, I was looking for this form of like strong, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, explicitly political action. I was looking for some like quick trick that could, you know, bring down Amazon or something. Um, and I realized that um, I was not paying attention almost to the most important thing to how people survive and endure within a digital economy and how you feel and stay with the disempowerment um, rather than trying to like immediately fix it or immediately sort of um, find your way out of it. Um, because I actually don't think that there is a way out of a lot of um, these things. Um, you know, I don't have a solution in my book for how to overthrow capitalism. Um, and I think that actually part of my thinking in this book um, is is a form of just how to stay with um, the trouble, as it were, um, how to stay with you know all the, the negative feelings that you have um, to find something useful out of, um, you know, the fact that we are sort of endlessly doom scrolling and, and being inundated. And um, what is how do I make sense of how one lives within um, the state uh, where we are all stuck in, a, you know, or in partial stages of being, uh, you know, in a pandemic um, in in a moment of, of all these crises. Um, so uh, so there's that. Um, the other half of it is that it, it's just really interesting to watch um, digital culture evolve, right? Um, to hear from my neighbors that their kid, um, you know, for all that one can criticize being online, I mean, this is the only way that they've had um, to see each other if you're like an eighth grade or something, that Discord is, is like all you have to, um, to play games or something. So it also comes out of this feeling that, um, you know, in the last few years, everybody, you know, seems to have a self-help book about how to go on a digital detox, how to, you know, um, focus more and how to 
essentially be a more productive person. Um, and I, I think there's something really fascinating about all these forms of, you know, the crappy games and the um, and the endless scrolling on TikTok. I mean, all of that seems actually really interesting to me. And I'm interesting to me. And I'm I'm not trying to say this is good and this is bad. I'm just um, trying to understand what this feeling um, says about uh, where we are uh, today as a society. One thing that I'm thinking about as you're talking is that I'm still on the Industrial Revolution because I just sure. find the Industrial Revolution fascinating, but I think I'm still going to bring it into present day, um, where where you have this, you know, the rise of the assembly line and all these things that change how we think about productivity and also warehouses and how they function. Um, and so then you have the rise of the digital as it, as it happens and online platforms. And But we also have increased attention now to say like the Amazon warehouses and to other types of how physical goods are being connected, but they're still being mediated um, by more digital systems. And so I'm curious um, how you think about maybe digital lethargy through also the lens of what's happening on the ground is how either capital or actual goods are being moved in different ways because of technology. Yeah, I mean, my earlier book on the cloud was really an attempt to try to find the material um, spaces of the internet, to try to go into the data centers, to look at the fiber optic cables as they were being run underneath um, railroad tracks. And I think that what I really started to care about um, were the workers that were sort of um, hidden in the visible conduits, right? So um, what I think um, is going on today is that the digital economy really runs on service with a smile, right? So it's the warehouse workers that make um, that smile on the side of your Amazon box feel um, convenient because it shows up magically like the next day or even the same day. Um, but it's also about the micro workers that are training AIs um, to recognize emotions. So they you know, spend their time uh, looking at videos, deciding whether or not that's a um, confused smile or a, you know, whatever kind of strange um, categories of emotion that they have there. Um, and a lot of those workers uh, are actually call center workers or they're hired by the same outsourcing firms. They normally hire um, BPO, business process outsourcing workers, um, because, of course, th those are the ones that are really good at doing that kind of emotional labor of, you know, working with clients and knowing when to modulate their emotions um, on the phone or on a chat. Uh, so what I'm really interested in, in is, is saying that the digital economy runs on service. Um, and I mean that service and service workers, which are primarily brown and black. Um, but also uh, the idea of, um, you know, being surrounded by digital assistants or digital services or digital servers that do whatever we want, that they wait for us to um, give them orders and they carry them out. Um, and so I think to be stuck in that environment, to be a worker in that environment, um, sort of forces you to become... Um, puts you in the position of lethargy, which is uh, which is to say that you are placed in the position of someone who waits for orders, who doesn't have time to themselves, who maybe gets, you know, 10 minutes before your next ride, but you don't know when that ride's going to come. So you kill time by playing a casual game on your phone. Um, and, um, you know, what I... So even though the book is primarily interested in these um, blue-collar workers, uh, workers that are spread around the globe, um, these uh, freelancers and even spammers uh, to some extent. Um, you know, my hope is to connect that to uh, other kinds of work, to the kind of person who might say, oh, I'm exhausted from my day at work in the office. Um, because what I want to say is that, you know, everybody is being turned into services, right? Um, this idea from the cloud that initially you'd have software as a service or storage as a service, right? You could have, you know, 50 um, gigs on demand, you know, by clicking a button um, because it's all from a shared pool. Uh, 
you know, that has spread everywhere. That's become an economic model. So you've got something like Uber describing itself as a you know transportation service or um, Airbnb as a housing service. Um, uh, we used to have an accountant in my department um, and then her position was terminated and they created something called a shared services center where so now we just file tickets and someone anonymous on the other side of campus, um, actually off campus, uh, you know, fills their requests. We have no personal contact with them anymore because accounting has been turned into a service, right? So um, I just heard that there's something called learning as a service uh, for students. And so I've realized that instead of a professor, I'm actually like a learning service for my students. Um, all I'm trying to say here is that uh, rather than seeing this as like a blue collar, a poor person, a disempowered person, you know, problem that, you know, they're really on the bleeding edge of what I think is happening in the, in the whole economy. And um, I think that's what, you know, ties their position of lethargy, um, their position of not quite being a person of being, uh, you know, if you think about Jeff Bezos's description of uh, micro workers as artificial, artificial intelligence, um, you know, they're, they're sort of artificial personhood um, as something that seems to be spreading um, to the rest of the developed world. I hear you saying that um, people who are micro workers or people who are doing some sort of work as a service, that might be a means to an end where the end is a feeling of lethargy or digital lethargy, depending on their, their workplace. And I'm wondering if you have an example or a concept of what the opposite of lethargy is. Like, is this, is lethargy just some destiny that we are, are bound to feel now because everybody is working in like a somewhat digital capacity? Or is there a way to work without lethargy? <laughs> I think lethargy is the verso of this model of super pumped up individualism of empowerment and personhood that the digital economy solves us on. Um, if the whole idea is that you can be yourself um, all the time, that you're an authentic person, um, that you're the one who has all the agency, that you're the acting, uh, the person that acts um, and you act upon you know, assistance or objects or whatever else, um, that it's your choice. Um, that's all, I mean, like, if you think about it, it's, it's obviously a fantasy. And um, what that fantasy conceals is um, this nagging feeling that actually maybe um, being an individual or being a person um, isn't all that it's cracked up to be, right? Uh, so um, Ellen Ehrenberg writes that this is actually, the, this culture of entrepreneurialism um, is is one where if, if everybody has this this feeling of choice everywhere uh, it's, it's actually very exhausting right to like you know always be the decider all the time um and so uh what i do want to say though is that the the burden of um of personhood or this this burden um falls um, a little bit more heavily on, on persons of color right uh so um if if you know because persons of color have you know traditionally been thought of as lazy or um, thought of as people who don't who can't act for themselves um, who've been thought of as generic rather than individuals um, so i think you see it there first uh, and um, my hope in this book is to try to tie together all these histories uh, histories of anti-vagrancy laws which are used to uh, police people of color uh, to the contemporary moment um, where uh, it seems like being idle or being um, we're doing nothing is, is, is very hard for some people to do, certainly for service workers, right? Um, even as it's sort of being recommended as a remedy um, or an escape uh, for people who can like afford to have their secretaries, you know, answer all their email for them when they, you know, take off for two weeks. So um, I don't think that there is 
um, a way of, of living outside of um, lethargy or, or, uh, or personhood um, at the current moment. But I think that if there is such a way, I think it is letting go of this attachment we have to this model of um, the self uh, that the digital has produced. Um, and so I'm thinking about, I mean, this is an example um, uh, when the, uh, I'm sure that your listeners know about this um, moment, I think in 2009, when HP webcams can track black people, right? And um, more recently in 2019, there was a, a National Institute of Standards and Technology report that said that webcams, um, was it uh, 10, facial recognition systems have 10 um, to 100 times uh, more likely to misidentify black and Asian faces. Um, so so I'm talking to my friends about this and we're, we're saying, wait, wh what's so um, bad about um, being misidentified and going unseen by a surveillance camera anyway, right? Um, you know, in our, in our demand to have um, more identity, more representation, more of ourselves all the time, um, there are all these things that go with it, right? The carceral systems that feed on such visibility. Um, so maybe being generic, maybe being more robotic rather than more human, maybe being more lethargic rather than less lethargic, um, is actually a good thing, right? Uh, maybe there's all these things that can adhere to being lethargic. Um, I'll, I'll finish with one last um, phrase I really like uh, from Edouard Glissant, um, the poet and the theorist. Um, he talks about consenting not to be a single being. Um, and I think that idea, which uh, has a really interesting history in Black studies, Fred Moten um, takes it on as well, um, kind of sets aside this this you know our attachment to this you know ourselves as bounded individuals that are like you know sovereign actors and maybe that's too theoretical but maybe there's something about letting go of of all these um attachments to our authenticity to you know being ourselves all the time um that lethargy can produce i think there's something positive about that this isn't making me think of some of the um, guests we've had on the show who have been talking about non-Western ways of, of viewing the world, or especially I'm thinking about indigenous studies um, and indigenous ways of, of viewing the world, some of which go in direct contrast to some of these ideas of, of pure productivity being, say, the, the meaning or the worth of a person, or that there is an individual personhood in the first place. So thinking about more of the collective. And I'm wondering in your work or your research, how you think about um, maybe voices outside of this dominant voice that has been at the center of technology building. And I'm thinking mostly, you know, white male voices um, and especially Western voices in that. Yeah. I mean, thank you for that. Um, you know, that is exactly the direction that um, is exciting to me to think about the digital um, from these different perspectives. I mean, I'll, I'll say that the book itself is um, relies very heavily on uh, black studies and also um, Asian studies and also queer studies. Right. So um, all all sort of um, theoretical disciplines that might seem kind of obscure, uh, but have spent a lot of time um, saying, wait, here are ways in which our individual selves are undone. Um, here are ways in which, um, you know, uh, we've always been compared to robots, but, you know, isn't that interesting rather than something that we should like immediately discard? Um, uh, there's a kind of there's a very interesting thinker named Arya Dean, um, who's a curator uh, as well as a writer and artist. Um, and she says, you know, the, the thing that we learned to do um, in the 90s, essentially, um, was to be multicultural, right, to like have um, a strong sense of our identity and to have our identities represented um, at all costs. Um, and 
she says, but what if we don't care about that, right? Um, to, to think about um, uh, a black body as a body which is generic, which is um, overly circulated, these are all really terrible things, but these are also uh, an interesting state that we can start to explore and, and investigate, right? The um, idea of not consenting to be, you know, um, a single being. So um, I, I love thinking about um, these examples because they sort of help place things which seem really natural and things which seem like, of course, we want that um, uh, under a microscope and say, like, why do we want this? Like, why do we think that doing an action and uh, all these things like, and choice or so on are, are sort of automatic goods, right? Um, so the more we can do that, the, uh, I think the uh, better off we'll be in trying to understand and build um, a better uh, vision of, of of selfhood and ultimately um, yeah, the digital uh, which is built on it. I'm going to play off of that last phrase you just said of building a better vision, because I think this is a great segue into your book, which um, it, for lack of a better word, I, I think there's a lot of speculative envisioning in it. And it has this really unique artistic style to it. So I'd love if you could just give us a, a little bit of a sneak peek into your book and how art and speculative uh, design and, and futuring plays a role in how you think about digital lethargy. Yeah, uh, it was a real pleasure to write because I think the chance to just listen to artists and to watch them enact um, and perform either dystopian versions, uh, visions of the future or um, ways of restaging our situation. Um, you know, I have an artist uh, who uh, has taken a, a Fitbit and strapped it to a metronome and apparently you can get a healthcare discount, right? Um, if you can prove that you've done a certain number of steps, right? But um, if you're feeling lazy, you just turn on the metronome and it just does the, you know, a thousand steps for you. Um, so uh, a lot of them are, are really humorous. Um, a lot of them are kind of uh, dark in some ways. Um, but I think what they all are connected by is a feeling of of moving away from that kind of productivity, um, that, that feeling of what happens if we let go of um, this, this kind of demand um, to be yourself all the time. Um, let me go into a little bit more detail about one example, um, which is a strange example. Uh, and, and here's where I want to admit that, uh, you know, my PhD is actually in film studies um, and I haven't been writing about film in about 10 years, but so maybe writing this book made me want to go back to my roots in some ways. Um, it's a film that's not about the digital, um, at least explicitly. Uh, it's an Australian film called Sleeping Beauty by Julia Lee, uh, and the protagonist um, is a sex worker, uh, Lucy. Uh, she also is doing what the filmmaker calls radical passivity, right? So people are really awful to her. Um, they want rent from her. Someone trips her um, when she's waitressing. Uh, crew men want to have sex uh, with her in bars. And she mostly goes along with it. Um, she mostly nods and consents. And there's something really frustrating about this um, when you're watching it. Um, uh, why isn't she fighting back, right? Um, but why are we frustrated with her rather than with the environment that she's stuck in, right? That she's a member of the working poor, that there's all this misogyny around her. Um, why is she forced to take all these service jobs? Um, and so I think about Lucy as an example, a kind of a parable for the digital, um, both in the kind of literal way in which, in the way that she speaks to other people as if, um, 
you know, she's constantly in a customer service chat, right? Um, like everything she seems to, to say seems to be, you know, through the kind of protocols of like what you're allowed to respond to, to you know, to someone who's wealthier than you. Um, but also an example of what endurance is and why endurance um, is so important. Endurance, I think, is, is sort of the message that lethargy um, says in the end, um, to be acted upon, right, rather than to be the actor. Um, we don't like seeing endurance because, the you know, it doesn't change things because it drags on and it challenges our idea of what she should be doing. Like, we want her to, to like, you know, throw a glass of wine in the face of these, like, awful men at the bar or something. Um, but what it does do is it uh, focuses our attention on the endlessness and the power dynamics of the situation she's stuck in. Um, and so even though it's not uh, directly about digital things, I, I, I sort of also see it as a parable of um, how we uh, we um, interact with our digital assistants, right? So um, thinking about how our digital assistants are programmed to be passive, how Alexa was programmed to respond initially. Uh, if you said you are a bitch to her, she was uh, originally said, thank you. Um, so I think it's ultimately a way of, of understanding, you know, how we see ourselves as human in comparison to other people um, who are, uh, who lack personhood somehow. And I think that's an example of how I, I try to move between these art objects, some of which do really explicitly address digital capitalism and labor of being in a, working in an Amazon warehouse, of um, of being a micro worker and so on, and some which seem a little bit further apart, but um, I think speak to the feeling of our present day. This is not a legal question, <laughs> um, the, uh, but I am uh, interested in accountability and responsibility because one of the things that I'm hearing you saying, and I think I saw in the book as well, is that these systems they both exist because of, and then also replicate and continue to persist these greater patterns of that endless scrolling that you see on TikTok. Or, and I think we can all think of examples in which we're reminded that like, okay, productivity is the way that we need to go. And then we're reminded constantly by the media, by all these things that we see and just these systems that we're in. Um, and so I'm wondering for, and maybe, maybe a way to phrase this is like for folks who are in our audience who do some of this platform design and want to find alternative ways that they're, you know, thinking through these things or bringing to their teams. What do you see as the responsibility of those platforms in combating digital lethargy, if at all? I guess what I say, I'd start with saying what I see right now, which is um, the inability for people to be idle, right? Um, Amazon Mechanical Turk was initially sold as a way to, for housewives to earn a little bit of money in their spare time so they wouldn't just be like sitting around all day. Um, we have all these apps that sort of are designed to um, keep us moving and, and sort of uh, keep us engaged, um, even if in a very passive way, like things like Twitch, right? Um, you know, so I'm not even talking about like, you know, real forms of engagement. I'm just talking about like logging on and watching something. Um, and and I think that the loss of our ability to do nothing is is um, something that we could think about. That um, you know every app that's you know designed to take away the discomfort of you know waiting in line for you know five more minutes or you know being by ourselves for five minutes. Um, I think maybe one of the messages of lethargy is uh, that it's okay to sit in unpleasant um, you know moments. Um, that there is uh, something important about um, doing that rather than sort of um, having uh, a fix for, you know, um, all these all these moments of downtime. Um, and I guess what I would say to designers, and I'm 
grateful for the work that you're doing in, um, in designing a different kind of uh, future um, is to forget, right, to, you know, to go back to the word lethargy, to forget um, some of these models that we have for um, how um, we should act, um, how we should be. Uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking about, um, sorry, my uh, technical, my uh, headphone fell out. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking about, um, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, so to think about authenticity, right, which seems like, um, you know, maybe this is a little bit too, too in the weeds, but I think we typically think about privacy as something that we have that's inside of us that we have to protect from other people who are trying to corrupt it, um, whether that's advertisements on our feed or, um, you know, state actors somehow. We have this um, uh, individuality that, that we need to protect at all costs. Um, and so people have all these like elaborate uh, ways, like browser plugins that um, try to obfuscate our search history in order to, um, you know, allow us to like have our own real search terms uh, hidden inside the cloud of it. Um, uh, I, I think the problem with um, all of these is that it, it leaves unquestioned, for example, like why do we believe that we have this like inner precious self that we have to protect from everybody else? Why do we think that um, the norm is, is terrible and that we have some sort of, you know, um, special, um, you know, status there? Um, so I, I guess what I want to, say is that um, are there ways of designing things that um, think about collectivity um, not just based on the idea of the individual uh, stuck together um, but in other you know very different ways right um, what are what are social networks that have um, multiple spaces for identities um, yeah I mean I think that's that's where I would start and I um, am fortunate that I don't teach design I'm just a poet so um, I'm I'm not paid the big bucks to do any of those those calls, um, but uh, it's a really uh, great question to think about. I mean, I think the other thing um, to think about is is that uh, the current systems that we have are not inevitable, right? Um, if you look at the history of the internet, like what a weird you know design that ended up winning over you know the um, uh, over the French Minitel system, over uh, all these other ways in which it could have gone differently, right? So. Um, to think about this system as the only as the sort of end result of uh, and to think about it as the only way in which we can do things um, is uh, is kind of like cementing into place, you know, what happened to be just a kind of historical accident. One last thing I'll say about that is that I think a lot of design is driven by a kind of optimism, right, that uh, this generation of tech sucks and we can get the next generation that will improve on that. Um, so there's that sense that like things will always get better. Um, and that's that sense of optimism um, and progress isn't the case for um, a lot of the world. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the writer Kathy Park Hong, uh, who is an Asian American writer, um, who talks about the experience of um, being told that things are always getting better. And she she feels like she's being gaslit by that, right? Um, she feels like actually to be a person of color is mostly to like have the same things happen over and over. Um, and so this is a very strange call, but I wonder what would happen if um, we sat with the pessimism of um, knowing that, um, you know, the technology won't necessarily improve people's lives. Um, you know, does that, does that help us get to a different starting point or a different place for doing design?
think on this show, I mean, intentionally, we usually try to focus on hope and optimism and positive visions for the future because there can be a lot of pessimism when we talk about like tech ethics and responsible tech and the ways that all the things are going wrong. <laughs> but um, I think you're totally right. There is a place for pessimism in here too. And without pessimism, we can't always critique the systems that might be harming us or impacting us in negative ways. And I think my next question, my follow-up question with that is, so then what? Because what I hear from what you were just saying is um, like technology can be really bad and like our digital devices in some ways have made us lose our ability to do nothing. They've made us lose our ability to be bored in positive, healthy ways. And I'm wondering, like, is it even possible for us to find a way out of this digital lethargic space or is it possible for us to to be i guess like this is kind of ironic talking about like the self when we're trying to take the self out of it but to be like uh, you know individual agents in in our lives and and living the the healthy personal lives that we want to live while also being attached fundamentally to these devices in order to function in modern society like what as individuals and and people who don't have a stake in the design of these systems what what can we do with the digital world that we've been handed. Yeah, and I guess my answer is is um, this is what I get uh, as an English professor, right? Um, is to say that I'm actually not that bothered about technology. Um, I mean, everybody knows that technology is bad. There's like no point in saying that again. Um, what I am bothered about is why uh, there's still structural racism in the world, um, why there are these um, disjunctures between um, uh, the developed West and uh, the global South. Um, and so my goal here is to get us to think about the terms differently. So I'll give you an example. Um, we often hear again about um, micro workers in AI or elsewhere um, being uh, workers in a digital sweatshop, right? Um, that, are, that are being exploited by uh, Western companies like Facebook. Um, and usually this is meant as a way of, of sort of saving them, right? Of, of sort of finding some way of um, um, bettering their lives. Um, and yet, when I hear this, I think two things, right? Um, where's the agency of the people who are actually in the global south, right? I mean, if everything is, if they're just victims of Facebook or whoever else, I mean, this is all about Facebook and not them, right? Um, the second thing is, um, when they describe their own situations, um, they don't think of themselves as, um, you know, ex you know, working in a sweatshop isn't really the right word. Sure, they know that they're being exploited. They know that their wages are terrible. Like they live that reality, right? They live the fact that there are no jobs um, and this is what they can get. Um, and yet, if we think about this solely as a matter of exploitation, um, that the work that they do is sweatshop labor, that they're unskilled workers, they're you know, basically robots, um, this just kind of dehumanizes them a second time, right? And so what I really want to do is not so much to say, um, you know, pessimism is everywhere and we should just give up. Um, but to just reframe the terms by which we use to describe the problem um, so that we get out of the kind of traps that we're in, that kind of reframe the, the people we're supposedly trying to help um, as you know uh, passive victims. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, if you look at, um, again, someone like Fred Moten, um, uh, there's a lot of joy in pessimism. There's a lot of joy in um, being together with other people and not being an individual. Um, there's um, there is uh, dance and there's song and there's there are ways of being with other people. Um, uh, ultimately, that 
just don't register as action um, on the same scale that that we tend to think of as action, right? As as political or something. Um, one person I talked to, uh, um, uh, Adriana Garriga Lopez, uh, who works in Puerto Rico, uh, was talking about how, you know, Puerto Rico, which has been taken over by you know, um, uh, crypto uh, uh, entrepreneurs and so on, um, after uh, Hurricane Maria. Uh, the the idea is you know um, always what should we do right um, how do we reconstruct our island how we, how do we rebuild how do we get more funding how do we invest um, and the bank of uh, the Banco Popular de Puerto Rico uh, actually changed um, commissioned a, a famous song which is all about being lazy and, and they commissioned the songwriters to um, turn it into a song about you know uh, doing things again and, and rejecting laziness and so on. Um, but Adriana told me that, uh, you know, these are all these like big visions of like what we can do with Puerto Rico, right? Um, we should invest all this money into its stocks and make it a cryptocurrency haven and um, do smart contracts and so on. Um, and she, in the meantime, she's describing uh, people who are selling avocados to each other, you know, one or two avocados from their tree and, you know, helping um, that kind of daily work of survival uh, happen. Um, and it really made me realize that um, the kinds of actions I'm interested in talking about are these smaller scale you know, acts of endurance of how you get through the day, um, how you get through with dignity and um, how survival is something that we don't attend to. I mean, I, I think in the same way that um, when you think about design, we tend to think about people who code or um, use APIs or, or, or whatever else. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, I was talking to an artist who uh, spent a summer stripping 10,000 tulips uh, and photographing them and categorizing them to make a data set about tulips. Um, and it drove her, you know, she was she began to see, uh, you know, tulips in her dreams. She, she began to, like, be unable to tell the difference between a pink tulip and a, and a white tulip um, because, you know, all the colors began to you know, bleed into the one. Um, but as she says, this is Anna Riddler, um, we don't think about people who make databases or maintain databases as creative, right? And yet they're also doing um, creative acts uh, just as much as, you know, programmer is. Um, so I think that's the place where I would actually refocus our attention on design at, you know, thinking about these, you know, we, we typically think of data cleaning as something which is like menial labor, right? But like, um, these are acts of judgment. Um, and so I think that's that's where I would kind of redirect it a little bit away from like how do we build a different platform uh, into where are these sort of small acts um, come from uh, small acts of survival that are actually ultimately maybe more interesting um, in helping us out uh, get a way out um, and building a collectivity uh, than things that seem political with a capital P. We only have a few minutes left before we're out of time, but I do want to get one question in, um, mostly because you mentioned um, Kathy Park Hong, who, uh, when I was back at, at Sarah Lawrence for my BA a long time ago, I actually took a poetry class. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, and um, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm a poet. I know that Jess is a musician and also a, a writer. Um, and uh, so I, I think the question I have is about like interdisciplinarity and also the role of art in this. Um, because you're in the English <laughs> department, right? Like you're in a department that is different than where a lot of these conversations, at least in our world of this, you know, human computer interaction designy space um, are happening. And so I'm wondering if you just had a few sentences about how 
you see the role of departments such as like English or about disciplines that are maybe outside of that design space or outside of this, like the usual suspects, quote unquote, um, how you see that that dialogue um, can be fruitful for this topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, mostly teach poetry in my English department. Um, so it's it's an interesting question because I haven't thought about reflecting on it. It seems so different um, in some ways than, than this work. Um, I think what's been most useful, um, let me give you an example. I was, uh, the artist Ricardo Dominguez was talking about how when he was growing up, he didn't have access to the internet, right? Um, all he had were books by William Gibson. Um, you know, cyberspace was, you know, a consensual fantasy. It was like something that they all believed in, but it didn't involve, you know, logging into a terminal. That, that all happened later, right? Um, I think that there's something about the power of envisioning that books can do. Um, I, I think there's something about if you want to study feelings and how we live in a world rather than um, uh, technology, that's best done not through lines of code, but it's done through artworks. Um, it's done through how people are trying to make sense of the contradictions that are in the world. Um, and I think that you know, a department like English uh, is helpful in simply figuring out the stakes of what we're talking about, right? So before we all rush to do something, you know, you know, I think this book is trying to say, like, what do we mean by doing, right? You know, what what counts as doing, and what counts as, you know, and what do, why do we call some things not doing? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Kathy Park Hong's book, um, you know, really changed the conversation about race and. Um, you know, specifically Asian Americanness, but um, just about how we think about race in this country. And I think that's the power of, um, you know, works by poets um, and filmmakers and performers and dancers um, is they're, they're sort of figuring out what happens to the actual body, you know, in the middle of all this. Uh, you know, I two dancers talk about both the ergonomics of typing all day during data entry and also comparing that to what it's like to, you know, um, sit motionless and being forced to stay still um, uh, in a dance performance. So there's a kind of choreography of, uh, of work, right? Um, uh, she, uh, one of the um, dancers that I talked to uh, thought about logistics of unloading uh, containers from ships as a delicate choreography. And if you've ever seen the pictures of um, uh, Amazon's robots uh, doing the nutcracker dance, um, you know, there's there's a choreography also of getting workers to work alongside um, the robots. So I think the terms that I'm most excited about are ones which go between um, you know, like logistics. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I think these are ideas that um, that you can step back for a second and, and think about. Um, aside from that, I, I mean, being interdisciplinary, I mean, so I used to be a coder a long time ago. Um, you know, I have a computer science degree from like, you know, 1922 or something. Um, but I don't think that that actually gives me that much more insight into um, what I'm doing, I think the only thing it allows me to do is maybe to have more conversations with computer scientists. Um, but, uh, 
you know, I think there's a model right now that like everyone needs to code in order to like, you know, understand this economy. But I think that, you know, at the same time, I also think that the 12 year olds that live down the street from me um, understand this world, you know, better than I do. Like, I really just want to hire a lot of 12 year olds to tell me, you know, where the world is going. So, um, so it's all of these, right? It's like kind of an all above the model. Um, and, you know, I happen to be really bad at doing ethnography and I have to be really bad at, um, you know, being a social scientist and writing grants. Uh, so I, I like being, I like my little tiny perch, uh, you know, as a poet. Um, it's, it's a little bit more fun in some ways. Well, thank you so much for bringing poetry and art and English and your interdisciplinarity into this conversation. And unfortunately, we are out of time. We would love to continue talking more about this. But for now, thank you so much, Tung Hui, for coming on our show and for discussing your upcoming book with us. Justin Dillon, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. We want to thank Tung Hui again for joining us for this conversation about his new book that is forthcoming from MIT Press called Digital Lethargy, Dispatches from an Age of Disconnection. And if you're listening to this episode when it first comes out, Treat this conversation as a little bit of a preview of the book because the book itself comes out on October 4th. But you can pre-order it today through MIT Press. So as normal, we're going to jump into some immediate reactions that Jess and I have as our outro. Jess, what are you thinking about this interview? Ugh, there was so much good content in this interview, as usual. So um, where do I want to begin? Um, I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me was when Tung Hui said something about how we've lost our ability to do nothing. And this reminded me of, uh, I feel like I, I quote this book all the time when I'm with my friends. It's probably kind of annoying how often I bring this book up. But it reminded me of the book Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle that discusses the, the modern um, digital age of communication and the way that we communicate with each other through our devices and how we've lost connection with one, one another because we're so enveloped in these digital devices that are basically like an extension of our fingertips at this point. And I, I was just reminded of how, um, how often I feel digital lethargy or burnout or exhaustion, even just when I want to check the time, for example, because I don't wear a watch on my wrist. If I want to check what time it is on my phone and I look at my phone and then the unlock screen shows me that I have like 50 notifications from all the 20 different messaging platforms that I currently have uh, some sort of profile on. It's very, very exhausting. And, and all I wanted to do was just the simple task of looking at the time. But now I have to think about these 20 different tasks that have been added to my to-do list against my own will because people have messaged me or people have asked something of me like on an email or or messenger or text or whatever it is and um i i get it man it can be it can feel very exhausting even just trying to do very very simple tasks in today's day and age with how connected we all are and how expected it we're all how much we are all expected to be constantly online and logged on at all times and accessible and available at all times so that, that's probably my, my first immediate reaction. What about you, Dylan? I can confirm how many times Jess references the Sherry Turkle book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, th this conversation resonated with me in a lot of different ways. Using your example of technology and its ever presence and how it's changed, I think, all of our lives in some 
maybe some really wonderful ways, but also um, some very constant ways that we don't always, subtle ways that, that can be insidious or otherwise. I um, did get a, a, a watch so that I could replace looking at all of my notifications every time I check the time. Um, but then my watch now tells me, you know, like what my blood pressure is, what my heart rate is, all these different um, metrics. And in some ways those are like metrics of self-surveillance where like the second I know those things and all of a sudden I'm paying attention to these things that otherwise would just be as natural as breathing or I would just go on a run as opposed to look at this chart of, you know, where my path was and how I can optimize that path and optimize all of these things about how I can train better, etc. And so I think the point about uh, digital lethargy being a feeling is really key here. Um, and it makes it really hard to, as part of our conversation pointed to, it makes it really hard to think about design for any of it. And that's something that I struggle with a little bit coming from a, a humanities background of we see these things happening and we know that there are these greater uh, things around meaning and factors around how these technologies aren't just impacting the practicalities of our lives, but how we feel about the world that we're moving through. And again, those feelings can come on in ways that we don't even recognize. Um, and so how do we address these things in the first place and those changes that are happening? Or I guess, how do we be more intentional about the way that our feelings are being impacted by technology mediation? which is really hard to get to the center of when it's the water that we breathe in. Mm. I'm gonna bring up the the C word, capitalism, which we bring up all the time in it's, these episodes. It's the water that we swim in, not, oh. not breathe in. That's, oh. that's the phrase. <laughs> it's your turn to mess up the phrases now. Usually I'm the one who messes up all the colloquialism. I've so never made I'm a mistake in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to, before, before we get a bunch of tweets about Thank you for catching that, yeah, so we don't get hate tweets for, for your mistakes. Very yes, important. I appreciate anyway, that. Anyway, continue with capitalism. <laughs> Thank you. Back to capitalism. <laughs> uh, something that, that was coming up for me in this interview also is uh, how difficult it is to design against things like the digital lethargy and exhaustion in a, this capitalistic world that tech lives in, at least when it's coming out of like Silicon Valley. And um, something that comes to my mind is that right now, you know, a lot of these algorithms and platforms, they're optimized for things like click-through rates or things like attention or time spent on the platform. And while that's great for monetary incentives and for these platforms to make a lot of money off of advertisers or whoever else is um, fronting a lot of the, the bills for, for these large corporations, it unfortunately, one of the unintended consequences is that it, it does lead to whether directly or indirectly, it does lead to this feeling of lethargy. And I do love this, this artistic speculative futuring that we got to in this interview and talking about, you know, what, what could the world look like if we didn't assume that the current trajectory was inevitable? And I love the idea of thinking of a world where technology and big tech in Silicon Valley was intending on enhancing our human experience rather than exploiting it. Right now, I feel like it's very exploitative. Like we pay at the cost of our sanity and our mental clarity and our, um, you know, whatever the opposite of, of lethargy. Like we, we pay with, with our, our own sanity by having to be constantly inundated with notifications and, and doom scrolling and all the things that we fall into with tech. And 
uh, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, if if we were to find other ways to maybe have subscription models or or other ways for these large tech companies to create monetary gain um, or revenue that did not rely on advertisers or whatever, then there, there could be ways for us to log on to our phones or, you know, unlock our phones, just look at the time and see nothing else. <laughs> and maybe there's no notifications because there's no apps because our phones have determined that that's what's best for us. And maybe the companies can still make money in some way, even though it's not off of exploiting uh, the things that that really make it difficult for us to exist in the digital world, if that makes sense. I feel like I kind of got a little bit on a tangent there, but but yes, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I, I love the vision of a future that enhances rather than exploits. That's my speculative vision, at least. Yeah, I think the word that was coming to me when you were um, talking in throughout this conversation was aliveness, was how do we, um, beyond, beyond presence, which I think like presence and mindfulness, like even that has become exploited within the Silicon Valley or appropriated in some ways to then be monetized, which is fascinating, like mindfulness apps, which are both really helpful for people in terms of addressing digital lethargy, but also you're on your app, you're on your phone in order to then address the digital lethargy. And so where does that cycle end? But how do we design technology for aliveness is I think a, a big topic for me. And then how you, how do you do that? Like it's the whole intention versus impact thing that, um, <laughs> that I mention all the time of like, uh, you know, people are, I think a lot of people are trying to design technology to make people's lives better and to enhance that human experience. And yet it's having the exact opposite effect. Um, and so there has to be some sort of middle ground. And also we haven't gotten there yet. Um, and so if we're not going to dismantle capitalism and we're not going to completely redesign every part of technology that's gotten us to where we are, then what is that next step forward? And, and so for me, I think this conversation is a way for us to begin to reframe some of the questions that we ask from the status quo, not just about design, but like how we live our lives with technology present. Mm, and in true radical AI fashion, how can we diverge from the norm? Nice. Thank you for bringing in that old language for those of you who have been around for a long time. (laughs) And speaking of time, we are out of it for this episode, unfortunately. But for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And that's also where you can find information, again, to pre-order Tong Hui's book, Digital Lethargy, Dispatches from an Age of Disconnection. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Please also um, leave us some reviews. <laughs> it's been a while since we've, we've gotten reviews. Well, we've gotten star ratings, which thank you for all of you for your star ratings. Um, but actual reviews really, really does help that uh, algorithm pick us up um, again. So, you know, if you're... If you have some free time after listening to this episode, uh, just write us a review. Type us a review. I was going to say combat your digital lethargy through (laughs) giving us more more attention. But um, we hope this is a good use of your time on your your device. Anyway, uh, catch our regularly scheduled episodes the last Wednesday of every month um, with possibly some bonus episodes in between. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical A.